Okay, a king's inevitable end. So uh, as we now approach this final chapter of 1 Samuel, there's a sense of, of relief, I think. And I hope you feel the same way. Now, why is that? Because we, as readers, we know what lies ahead. Now, if you've been with us the, the entire time that we've been covering 1 Samuel, you all should know by now that Saul's demise and death are coming. The end of his reign as king and his life uh, had been mandated uh, by Samuel back in chapter 13 and chapter 15 and had been confirmed explicitly by Samuel when he revisited him back in chapter 28. Now, if this is the first time you're joining us and you haven't been with us as we've been covering the past 30 chapters, it's okay. It's fine. I'll, I'll give you a really quick rundown um, about what you need to know in order to, to, what you need to know before we begin reading this final chapter of this book. Now, one of the main characters here has been Saul. We're told how he went from a relatively obscure member of a small Hebrew clan to being chosen by God to be the first anointed king of Israel. However, as his story progresses, we're given a perfect example of a man who had the potential to not only be great, to be a great king, but also to achieve many great things with the guidance of God and with the understanding that he is just a servant king. He's, God is the ultimate king, but God had appointed him to be as his viceroy or his, his helper king here on earth to lead his people, the Hebrew people. Um, but we find out throughout these chapters, as the chapters again go on, he ended up failing miserably. He ended up failing miser miserably as he gradually began to rely on himself, to depend on himself instead of God for wisdom and guidance. Saul's insecurity, impulsivity, his selfish ambitions and many other faults, any, many other issues that he had were driving him deeper and deeper into the bottom of the barrel until he finally hit it when he visited the medium at Endor or the witch at Endor. So by this point of the story, three, three, three things are absolutely clear. Number one, Saul was unfit as a king, as king. Number two, his inevitable end is soon. And number three, God's new chosen king was now on standby. Furthermore, Saul's story would end up serving as an example for future Israelite leaders or rulers about the dangers of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. So this is also, you know, he shows us also, or he has been showing us too what can happen when Christians and Christian leaders and churches depend upon themselves for that, again, that wisdom and guidance and they, you know, they stop, you know, relying on God's guidance and wisdom to lead them, to guide them um, through the ups and downs of church, um, but things going on at church. But uh, 
but yeah, you know, there's that's you know, we see that throughout these chapters, throughout this book. So now as we go through this final chapter, chapter 31, it's generally it's going to be a study on these two areas. The reality of death and its real and its relationship to the way we live our lives as believers of Jesus Christ. So before we get into these last, was it 13 verses? Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, um, we are absolutely humbled, Lord, that you have chosen us. You have picked us, Lord, to be your children. That you have picked out the people who have done a lot of horrible things, that have said a lot of horrible things, that have been part of a lot of horrible things, Lord, that, and that you still showed your grace and mercy to us and by forgiving us of our sins, Lord. The, again, the, the idea that the thought of who we once were, what you once did, it's, it's, it's shocking, Lord, that it is. It's, it's sometimes really shocking that you, will, that you pulled us out of the mire, that you pulled us out of the dirt, and now have, have made us kings and queens and have made us co-heirs with Christ and, and that you see us now as your children. And we are so thankful for that. So now, Lord, as we dig into your word, I pray that you will speak to us uh, clearly, that you will um, uh, show us what it is that we need to know, Lord, personally and as a church. Lord, may your word come alive, Lord. May it convict us in the areas we need we need to be uh, chipped, at, chipped away, Lord, removed, taken away, and may... It nourish us in those areas that we need nourishment, Lord. And may you give us guidance where we need guidance. Lord, give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Fill this room with your spirit and keep us safe here this morning. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So first Samuel. Chapter 31. And the word of God says, The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan Abinadab and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through with it, or these circumcised, uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw what Saul was, that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news at the temples of their idols and uh, good news in the temples of their idols and among their people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall 
of Beth Shan. When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave, brave men set out, journeying all night and retrieved the body of the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk, tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, before I continue to now break down this passage a little bit more, uh, there's something I want you to keep in mind. That everything that we just read in this chapter, basically, everything that's going on here uh, was was simultaneously what was ha the events in chapter thirty and chapter thirty were also going on. So both of them were going on simultaneously. Um, and so, I want you to, keep, again, keep that in the back of your mind. So just as Samuel had prophesied in chapter 28, verse 19, the Philistines conducted a massive assault and quickly and easily defeated Israel in the broad plains of the Valley of Jezreel. When Israel's army retreated to Mount Gilboa, we're told that many of them were also killed there. So as the dead began piling up, Saul, with his three, with three of his four sons, again, he had four sons, um, and we'll find out about the fourth son when we get to Second Samuel chapter two, but his name is uh, Ish uh, Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth. It's hard to say. Um, they decide, Saul and his three sons decide to flee the area. Now it wasn't long before they were overtaken. And like a memorial service, verse 2 names Saul's dead sons. Jonathan, Aminadab, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Now, during the most intense part of the battle, Saul is doing his best to find concealment, to keep his head down, to not be seen by the enemy. He knows that if he gets taken down, that's it. That's the end, the finality. And his, the whole nation will be demoralized his troops will flee and nothing will be left. So again, he's trying to keep himself from being discovered, from being captured, from being killed. Well, eventually he is discovered and is severely wounded. Fearing that he might be found or captured by the Philistines and tortured to death, he ordered his armor bearer. Now, also to keep in uh, another thing to keep in mind was that David was once his armor bearer as well. So this was the closest person to him during the battle. This is the person that kept all his gear, all his um, armor, his offensive, defensive weapons. Um, he would be the one that would send message, receive messages. So again, this is his right hand person. He orders this armor bearer to kill him. But that attendant disobeys Saul's dying orders. So verse five informs us that Saul, in violation of an Israelite taboo, essentially commits suicide. Now there is a lot of debate when it comes to this, because some will say that he didn't commit suicide, that he killed himself instead of wanting, instead of getting captured and tortured and all that, um, and that it's different than actually committing suicide for no apparent reason. 
Um, you know, I, I have my thoughts on that, and, and I'll just quickly, briefly just say this, that when you, when a person takes their own life, they're taking away what God has in store for them. They basically have taken matters into their own hands and have said, you know what, that's it, I'm done. And they're not allowing the possibility that God can do great things through this difficult, horrible time they may be going through. Now, yes, you know, there is here for Saul, that possibility was real, that he may have been tortured, that he may have been captured and tortured and probably all kinds of horrible things done to him, humiliated, and he chose he decided to end his life rather than to face that bit. There's also the possibility God could have used it, used his capture, do some great things. That choice was there, and he made the choice to end his life. And so by taking his own life, we now get a glimpse, we get a further glimpse of just how far he had gone to live a life that was completely independent of God. And shortly after that, whether from cowardice or solidarity, Saul's armor bearer followed Saul in his final act and commit suicide as well. Now, when the men of Israel learned that their king was dead, this completely demoralized them. And they abandoned the cities and, and just took off. They fled. And we then read that the Philistines then came and settled in those abandoned cities. And that is just an, an indication of the impressive nature of their victory. Now, when they eventually did find the bodies of Saul and his three sons, they, decap they decapitated the king's dead, the king's uh, dead king. They, they took off his head and displayed his armor in the temple of the Asherites. And these were, again, the Philistine uh, gods that they, uh, the temple in which they worshiped their gods. Um, then, to add insult to defeat, insult to injury, they impelled Saul's body and his sons without a head, completely uh, gruesome scene, on the wall of the city of Bethshan. Now, this is what these heathens, these uncircumcised, um, people would do during when they won these battles they would intimidate others by showing them what they could do what they will do and and they would just do all kinds of imaginable things and we can again already it's a picture what this scene must have looked like just seeing a bunch of dead bodies hanging along the wall of this of this city with no head, and probably completely mutilated. And again, all his gear, all his stuff, he probably had some kind of crown of that he would wear during the battlefield, at, on the battlefield, but that was taken. And so he was completely stripped of everything. Because of Saul's sins, he lost his dynasty, and then his kingdom, and then he lost his crown. Now, this ought to serve as also a warning for believers, for you and I, as we go through our struggles, as we go through our obstacles, as we think that all hope is lost, and, and we just want to give up and let go and, and just... Uh, 
give up uh, this life of faith, this life of obedience. Again, there's a warning from our Lord in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. And it's applicable, applicable, again, to all of us at this point. And he says this, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Again, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that you, as believers, you're now kings and queens. You have crowns waiting for you in heaven. And they will be handed to you once you get there. You just have to keep holding on. You have to keep going. Keep looking at the cross. Keep getting your guidance and your wisdom from God and allow Jesus to lead you through those difficult times. And we also, again, and it also says in Second John chapter 1, verse 8, watch yourselves so you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. There's rewards, crowns, all that waiting for us. Don't let the enemy strip you from that. That's his goal. It's to take it away. Like the Philistines. That's what he wants. That's what they want. That's what the devil wants to do is, is behead you and strip you from all your armor. Strip you from your crown, from the crown that's awaiting you. Keep running that race, brother and sister. Don't give up. Well, the residents of Jabesh Gilead remembered their debt to Saul. You see, back in chapter 11, a young King Saul had rallied the men of Israel to come and to come to their aid when they were intimidated by Nahash the Ammonite. And so now they wanted to demonstrate their continued loyalty to him. So the brave men of the city took a 12-mile journey during the night and risking their own lives, removed, did a recon mission and, you know, did what maybe a, an ancient version of uh, SEAL Team 6 and, and removed the impaled bodies of Saul and his sons from that wall and took them back to Jabesh Gilead, took them back to their city. And then to probably hide how much the Philistines had mutilated their bodies, they burned their bodies and buried their bones. Now, we're going to see over time, in time, that eventually the remains of Saul and his sons were removed from that area and placed in its rifle in its rifle place in their rifle place in the family tomb so as you can see again this is a short chapter it's going to cover some important parts of what we just read but as you can see this first book of samuel ends in a cemetery under a tamarisk tree in jabesh and we can only imagine all the funeral honors he was probably given. That the first king of Israel, the first anointed king of Israel, was probably given. Now, to be honest, Saul's life wasn't a success. But it wasn't a failure either. And in spite of, of all of that, this tormented man is now at peace. And just like everyone else, like every one of us, he will be judged in the end. And again, this is another one of those areas that uh, there's a lot of debate about, about whether, you know, he sinned far enough where he's going to be in hell and, or he's going to be with the Lord. 
um, in heaven, and we're going to see him up there. But again, that's not up for us to 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 know and to argue and to debate and to decide. We can't judge anybody. That's the Lord. He's the one who judges. He's the one who will decide who who will be who is worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure you've heard this before, and I've said it before, but when we get there, I'm sure that we're going to be surprised about the people that we see there. The people we least expect, or least expected to be there, will be there, and the people we most expected to be there won't be there. It's going to be interesting. And I hope that all of you will be there, that I'll meet all of you, be, that I will meet you and see you and embrace you and laugh with you. And, and, uh, and when we get there, when I see you there, and if I haven't met you and you're watching this, again, I hope that you will come up to me and tell me, hey, yeah, I, I saw one of your videos and it changed my life. And if that's you, again, just when we get to heaven, just, you know, feel free to, Tap me on the shoulder. Don't, tack, don't tackle me. Just tap me on the shoulder and and uh, just give me a hug and say hey, thank you. But I am looking forward to seeing every single one of you up there. Now, there's no denying that between the initial victory at Jabesh Gilead and his burial there, Saul had been a tragic hero whose career had been the subject of much artistic and literary work, as well as a lot of theological debate. He had so much going for him. His height gave him a commanding presence. He had been chosen by sacred lot and designated by a prophet of the Lord and had won popular acclaim by his valor in avenging wrong. Israel recognized moral worth and appreciated those leaders who cared about the oppressed as Saul had manifestly done. The majority of the people stood by him through thick and thin, continuing to fight alongside Saul even though they were also aware of David's valiant actions and that he was, would be, they, may, they didn't know at the time, but that maybe he was going to be the next king and that he was probably a better person to be king. But they still backed up Saul throughout that entire time. So, again, to, to summarize this particular chapter, or this first book of Samuel, it's, it's a book of a man's king and is a record of Saul's decline, defeat, and death. And so next time, uh, when, we, as we, when we begin 2 Samuel, we're going to see that that particular book, the next book here, Second Samuel, is a record of God's king, David. And it shows how God made a mighty monarch, a mighty king, out of a lowly and simple shepherd boy. Now what I want to do is, I want to draw out, draw out from this chapter two applications that are both important and useful both for the individual and nationally. And what I mean by nationally, it's for the church as a whole, as for the Christians, for, for Christians, us Christians as a whole, for the church. But I want to draw out two applications that I see here. On the individual level, the death of Saul draws our attention to the experience of death itself and its relationship to the way we live our lives. 
on the national level, this chapter completes the contrast between David and Saul and and contributes to our understanding of the nature and role of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Now, let me first touch on the experience of death. Now, you've heard this quote that it's been said that there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And I've heard someone else add that even cycles are inevitable. That also is, along with death and, and taxes, that is a for sure thing. Death unifies all of us. Death unifies all of humanity. It's the one experience we all share in common, regardless of our race, creed, heritage, or our station in life. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, death serves all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. It's not odd at the appearance of, the, of a proud palace, a numerous attendance, or a majestic countenance. Pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with as few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor out of his cottage. Death is as rude with emperors as with beggars and handles one with as much gentleness as the other. There is no favoritism in death. That's what he's saying. All are created the same, regardless of who you are. In this singular event, death, that is, we leave behind everything we have and take with us everything we are. Now, in the Old Testament, generally, an ignoble or untimely death implied that the deceased was sinful or somehow deserving of death. In the case of Saul's death, the message is clear by the writer since chapter 9. Saul's suicide is a result of tragic choices that he made in life. See, he had been anointed by God, by God's prophet, And the Spirit of God had come upon him powerfully to guide and direct him as the new king of Israel. In chapter 10, we saw how God had transformed him into a better man. And in chapter 11, we saw that that he initially had great military success in defeating the enemies of God's people. But he slowly came to despise the very man who anointed him as king, making it possible to follow, making it impossible to follow God's instructions for the nation. Ultimately, he rejected God's authority as king of Israel, and his life, as his life, and as we had seen, degenerated into a into pathetic bickering and jealousy. Rather than saving the people from the Philistines, from the enemy, Saul devoted himself to denying the kingdom to David. His charismatic gifts and blessings had deteriorated into madness. Saul's ignoble death is due to his ignoble life. Woody Allen said this, said this of death. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Friends, church, ladies and gentlemen, those watching again, it's one thing to have 
no fear of death. But it's quite another to want to escape the undeniable, undeniable uncertainty of it all. Chapter 31, therefore, is about the judgment of God. And if you've never thought about this subject before, this is a great time now for you to really seriously think about it, to consider it, to ask yourself what comes after I'm done here in this life. You see, a lot of people, not just Christians, but many people often postpone justice, the justice of God, or the justice that God will, 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 will have until the final day, until, uh, until the final day in the end times. They will say, you know, God will ultimately, well, God will ultimately uh, perform or do His justice in the end times, but again, they postpone it, they don't think about it and say, you know, God will take care of it at the end. But here's the thing, Saul's death brings us face to face with the realization that there is more to divine justice or judgment than pie in the sky, which makes the Christian gospel, which makes our gospel bigger than any simple turn or burn message. We all suffer in this life because of the sins we commit. Conversely, the Christian gospel offers more than a reward in the hereafter. You see, correctly formulated and communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ offers hope and peace in this life. It offers salvation. It offers you more than what you can imagine. A complete change of life. A complete change in how you think and how you see the world. And in your relationships with your spouse, with your family, with everybody, your co-workers. It completely transforms you into a new, born-again person by rightly relating to God in the here and now, by understanding the Lord, by drawing near to Him, by having an intimate relationship with the Lord, we prepare ourselves for loving Him eternally in the hereafter. C. Lewis has reminded us that we're all in the same boat and that any of us could end like Saul. And this is what he said. When any man comes into the presence of God, he will find, whether he wishes it or not, that all those things which seem to make him so different from the men of other times or even from his earlier self have fallen off have fallen off him he is back where he always was where every man always is idem sunt omnia semper which is latin for everything is always the same don't do not let us deceive ourselves no possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There is no, no cops, no um, crops, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. It may happen to any of us at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured, and in any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before Him like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but He and I existed. And since the contact 
cannot be avoided for long. And since it means either bliss or horror, the business of, of life is to learn to like it. That is the first and great commandment. And what is that commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said. And so thus, the way we die is related to the way we live. As Lewis implies, we have no greater or more, more urgent task in this life than to learn how to die well. Let me repeat that, ladies and gentlemen, because that's important. We have no greater or more urgent task in this life than to learn how to die well. So are you. That's my question for you. Are you, do you see that as an urgency in your life to learn how to die well? That's a challenge for you. Now, another lesson to be learned from Saul's death grows out of a national letter, which is, again, a greater level of interpretation through which this text contributes to our understanding of the Messiah. The first anointed one's death, that is Saul's, is described here in, a, in very, very vivid and shocking tones. In a, matter of, in a matter of fact way, the narrator relates to Saul's despair as he sank lower into the shadows of loneliness, abandonment, and desperation. And perhaps the ultimate contrast between Saul and David is the fact that in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, it says that David rested with his fathers meaning that he was buried in the family tomb. His death came after a long and successful rule over Israel, and he, and he died surrounded by his family with his son Solomon on the throne. Saul's sons died with him. His body dismembered, and his bones were given a modest disposal by the people of Jabesh. Death overwhelms Saul as an unwanted but irresistible foe. David met death as a timely and naturally and natural outcome of life. Thus, David becomes the ancestor of the Messiah, who will be victorious over sin and death confirmed by his resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, death is not the end of our story. If you are a born-again believer, if you surrender your life to Christ and he's made his home inside your heart, death is not the end of your story. You need not fear death. On the other hand, there's a lot to fear. If you're still in sin and still and if still if you're still in sin and you're still being shackled and still being held down by death. Jesus Christ came to free you from that, to free you from those shackles. He came to give you life, life everlasting, an abundant life, a beautiful life. Yes, a challenging life, but a beautiful life nonetheless. He did all that because he cared for you. He wanted you, he wanted that, he came because that reconciliation was necessary between man and God and the only way that could happen was through the shedding of innocent blood. We as sinners were guilty. 
were guilty sinners. But Jesus, the sinless one, the Son of God, died in our place. And so now, his sin, when he was there on the cross, all of humanity's sins, every one of our sins, past, present, future, the billions of people that now exist, that have existed, all of humanity's sins were now placed on him. And he took on everyone's sin in order to make us innocent. And when he died, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two, which signified again that man now had free access to God. And as I mentioned a minute ago, all this, who he was, was confirmed by his resurrection. And that is what distinguishes him above and beyond every prophet, every guru, every animal god, every, you know, nature god, the sun god, the earth god, the tree god, the rock god, the sea god, whatever it is. None of those things or people died for you and rose from the grave three days later. It's never been disproven. It will never be disproven. Anybody that has tried has failed miserably. They will make arguments, but they have no proof. And again, they're relying on the facts that they have. It's not even facts. They're relying on faith just as much as we're relying on faith. But the fact is, Jesus came, was here 2000, over 2,000 years ago, and died for you to forgive you of your sins so that the sting of death will no longer hurt you, will no longer, will be removed forever. you're a born-again believer. You should read this chapter in a way that leads to hope for the future. And if you're not a born-again believer, this chapter should lead you to the cross, to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if it has, and you're unsure what to do next, I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you pray this, if you pray this with all your heart, all sincerity, the Lord knows and He will wipe away your sins. And He'll make you into a new person. You'll become born again. And His Spirit will come make his will make his dwelling uh, will dwell in your heart in your life inside of you and will begin guiding you in the direction you should go you ought to go and you will want to start obeying him and again the veil the the uh, your eyes will be opened the veil that you have over your eyes will be removed and life will completely changed People don't get it, don't, don't understand it. And I didn't understand it at one point, but it all made sense once I received Jesus Christ as my Lord. Every single word in, in this book began to make sense. It made sense before, but now it had new meaning. And I saw it as God's word speaking truth into my life. So if you're ready for that change, if you're ready for that transformation, ready to be born again, wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And if you're able to, you, you can kneel, you can stand, you can... 
lay out uh, on your face before the Lord and pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I admit my sin and admit that I've blown it that I've completely blown it. And now I ask you to forgive me. I believe you died for my sins and confess you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you rose from the dead. And so now I turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. So I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you pray that, you're a born-again believer. The Spirit of God is now made His dwelling in you, and you're now a child of God. So if you need more direction, your next steps of this Christian life, you need some help finding a church, you need a Bible, Contact us. We want to help you in that in that area. We want to also hear your story and how you uh, came to to the Lord, how you found this video. But we want to hear from you. Please re- feel free to reach out to us. Again, our website is down right now, but because again we're going through some changes. But we have social media. We have our Twitter page, um, Facebook, YouTube, um, Instagram. So various other other ways you can reach out to us. And our phone number or address is, is there as well. Those watching, listening, that's the end of our message this week. I hope that you've been blessed. I hope that you've, um, that God spoke powerfully in one way or another uh, through his word or through anything that I've said. I look forward to seeing you again next week. We'll be here, Lord willing, or we'll see you up in heaven. Um, But thank you again and have a great week. Goodbye and farewell.